may be seated. What I want to do is just take, thank you, Mary, I want to just take a moment and just bring to your attention one of the items that's going to be on the ballot on April 3rd, Proposition 5. I'm sure if you've been watching the news at all, you have been giving, given at least some information related to this. It's not the only thing that will be on the ballot, and I encourage you, I believe God's Word encourages us to be uh, actively participating uh, in our government by being involved and voting according to the dictates of Scripture. Related to Proposition 5, what I want to do is just take a moment and introduce this subject. Uh, I want to talk just for a moment about what I believe would be the Christian uh, model for voting here and to give you a reason why. And then I encourage you this week to spend some time looking into that. We have a table out in the hallway that's got some information uh, on that table to try to help you get informed. Specifically, and I believe we've got this on a slide, if you haven't seen it, this is the language that's going to be uh, on that ballot related to Proposition 5. I'm just going to read it. You follow along. Anchorage Equal Rights Rights Initiative shall the current municipal code sections providing legal protections against discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, religion, national origin, marital status, age, physical disability, and mental disability be amended to include protections on the basis of sexual orientation or transgendered identity. I just want to give you one thought related to that this morning. Ask you to read up on it, study it, and then next week I'll try to explore that a little more. We certainly, as a people of God, we need to be a witness for Christ in the world in which we live. This, that is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world as Jesus Christ moves through us to reach people. So the question is, then, how do we best do that? How do we best impact and influence our society? So follow just a few questions and train of thought here. If we believe that God is the author of life, And if we believe that as the author of life, that God is the one that has the plan for how a life can be full and whole, a life and a home and even a society, what would prosper and benefit that society? So if we believe those two things, that God's the creator of life and he has the model for what works in life. And then, number three, if we believe that God has communicated that plan in his word. What does the word say about what is then healthy and whole and will provide a good full life for an individual, for a family, for a society? And when we find out what that is, it would seem to me that morality 
And our conviction there would dictate to us how we approach that subject. So if we see something that we can see is in direct opposition to the Word of God and what would provide for a person's health and wholeness or a family's or a culture's, then the reasonable, really only reasonable response would be to, in peace and in love, stand up against that from advancing in our society. Understanding that the advancement of it will bring not wholeness, but brokenness. Not health, but pain. Not just to us, but even to the people that are pursuing and participating in that. So I believe that Proposition 5, with the inclusion of this statement regarding sexual orientation and transgendered identity, to to make it a part of the anti-discrimination code is going to at least do one thing. It's going to help promote that lifestyle within this culture. And if the author of life has said that the promotion of what is against the truth is not going to be neutral, it's going to be negative, then the answer of love for us would be to stand up against that. Not even or simply because it's what we want. It's an act of love for our society, for our culture. To try to assuage the advancement of what will damage. So, in light of that, I'm just encouraging you, pray about it, research it. Ask God to give you clarity. And then on the 3rd of April, vote. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. I'm sorry, some of that tea went down the wrong passageway there. I'll talk to you a little bit more about the issues related to that next week after you have done some more research. You can get online and you can actually print off the not just the, the proposition in there that you're going to vote on, but the municipal code. And it shows you how it will be amended. It's about a 10 or 12 page document that strikes through what will be admitted in brackets, what will be included, and you can actually see how the actual verbiage of that will change all the way down through that municipal code. I've done that. I've read through that. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. Okay. Enough of that controversial subject. Let me introduce another one to you. (laughs) Two weeks ago, I told you that The next time that we continued in the series Divine Design, this series that is is about discovering, developing, and disseminating or using your gifts for the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom of God, I told you that we would be talking about some of the gifts that are controversial. We're going to begin that subject this morning. I thought it would be one, but I've discovered as 
so seems so often to happen, it's going to actually take two. So we'll be talking about that this week and the next. The gifts that we're going to look at, you know, I gave you two weeks ago, I tried to just really fly through a list of the spiritual gifts that were listed in Scripture, 20-some of the gifts, close to 30, and I said that we were going to zero in on some that were controversial. Here are three that are controversial. And they kind of fit within three or four. They kind of fit within a grouping of gifts. I'm just going to, for a a title, I'm going to say, they are the gifts of the miraculous. Now, let me just qualify that by saying this. Every one of the spiritual gifts are really miraculous. I mean, it is the person of the Spirit of God in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ that is working through that life. It's really something otherworldly, right? It's the Spirit of God on the ground in this world, in your life, through you, doing a work to build an eternal thing called the kingdom of God and to build people in that kingdom that are immortal. That's a supernatural thing. But there are some of the gifts that with the human physical eye and ear, we can see them and say, wow, those are out of this world. Those defy the limits of human ability. There is a evidence, there's a something that happens, there's a manifestation that clearly shows that this is not something that just came from the individual. Gifts are that fall within that, that supernatural, uh, visible evidence is the gifts of healing, gifts of tongues and the interpretation of tongues, gifts of miracles or signs and wonders. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to turn our spotlight upon that grouping of gifts. Now, I'm going to assume, and I think I can do so fairly confidently, that if you are a follower of Christ here this morning, if you are one that has committed your life to Christ and you believe that this right here is the Word of God, that when you come to Scripture that talks about the miraculous, that when you come to those stories in the New Testament where it was clear that something otherworldly broke forth and did what no man could do, that you accept that at face value as actual events, factual events of history and say, I believe that. I believe that that happened. This is, a, this is the word of God to us, divinely inspired. and Believe it. So I'm, I'm assuming that for the most of you who are followers of Christ, you would say, yes, I believe that. Mark chapter 16. Let me just read two verses out of Mark 16. Jesus gave the end of Mark, his followers, a great commission. They were to go out in all the world and to preach 
in his name, the good news that he offered of salvation. But he not only gave them a commission, he gave them a promise here in Mark 16, of following that commission. He told them that manifestations of power would accompany their message to confirm their message. Mark 16, 17, and 18. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. You see, those are the same things that fit within and are actually the precise things that I mentioned in that list of the gifts of the Spirit that fit within that camp of the visibly miraculous. We read in the New Testament, first of all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus, and we watch him in a three-year ministry Did he perform the miraculous? Yeah, he did. On a regular basis, he did. But the story does not end there. Then it goes into the book of the Acts of the apostles. Jesus said to them, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. And what the Spirit is going to do is He's going to come on you in power. And what that power is going to enable you to do is to be my witnesses in the world. The writer of Hebrews, a little bit later in the first century, writing about the work of the Spirit of God in that early church said this, that as they went out and they preached, Hebrews 2.4, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The book of Acts is an historical record of the church. It's an incredible story filled with visible moves of the Spirit of God through the lives of His people that were otherworldly things. So if you're followers of Christ, you take this as the Word of God, I'm assuming that you say, I I believe that. But here's where the divide comes. Here is where a great chasm opens up in the church. And I'll just talk about the church of this century and of this culture. There is a great division of doctrine, a difference of understanding here. And here's where the line is drawn. One side of the chasm... And the evangelical church says this, that those gifts, those miraculous gifts of the Spirit, those 
list of those, at least those four gifts that I mentioned right there, they are for the church today, just like they were for the church of the first century. The same spirit is in operation today in the same way. And so we can experience those gifts. The other side of the perspective says this. Those gifts were for the first century church. They were for the first church only. And those gifts are no longer in operation in the church today. And there are, listen, I can promise you this. There are people right here in this room that are on both sides of that. I've talked to you. Since I announced this two weeks ago, you've come to me. On both ends of the spectrum. Really three groups came. One that said, yes, they are in operation today. One that said, no, they are not. And then a third group that said, we are confused. Because we have heard what sounded like pretty good arguments on both sides. Please help. That's what I want to try to do this morning. I want to try and help you. And the way that we, and I don't believe it's just we, the way that this subject must be approached is this. We've got to find the answer right here. Right here. We cannot let experience dictate Scripture. We must let Scripture speak into our experience. And I'm saying that to people on both sides. That's an equal truth for people that are standing on completely polar ends. Scripture has got to be the authority. And we have to find what the answer is from the pages of this book, which God inspired to be written to be the guidebook for our life and for our church and for our ministry. So I'm going to try to do that this morning. Reason that we must begin here. I want to give you some specific reasons. Why? Here's number one. If these gifts... We have to settle this question first because if the answer is no and these gifts are not for the church today, if they were only for the first church in the first century or the first few centuries, we'll talk about both of those in a minute, then here's the problem that we are faced with. Why would we spend time even talking about it? I mean, if it's only for them and if it's not for us, Pastor Brad, why are you wasting our time? Let's deal with what we deal with in life and let's just forget about studying about something that happened 2,000 years ago that's never going to happen again. I mean, it'd be pretty important to have an answer to the question of is it real today or not? I just ask you this question 
if you lean toward that conclusion, that if you do that with these gifts, how do you know what is for you in the Scriptures and what is not? If you begin to cut out portions that you think were for that day and not for this day, then who determines what is truth and what is not truth? I would say that what you have to do, if you're going to stand in that position, what you must do is you must find in Scripture itself something that says it's only for the first church. If we can find that, or if you have got that locked down based upon Scripture then I think you have a valid argument. So that's one reason why we need to answer the question to start with. Here's a second reason. If the answer is no, I'm sorry, if the answer is yes, if these gifts are for us, as well as they were for the first century church. What hangs in the balance? I'll tell you what I mean by that. If Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses to the world. Church, can we change the world for Jesus Or can the Spirit of God through us change the world for Jesus? It better be the second answer. Because we can't do anything of eternal consequence unless the Spirit of God does it through us. So if the Spirit of God, Acts 1.8, the Spirit of God is to come upon us so that we can be His witnesses, and the way that the Spirit of God works through our lives is through spiritual gifts then we need to be using the gifts that we have been given so we can make an impact on the world. That's going to be critical for us to do that. Here's the third reason why we must start here. It's related to unity. You see, this is a very controversial subject. This subject right here has the potential of bringing a great divide in the church, and I am well aware of that. So what we need to do is to protect against that. We need to start with the question, are they for us or just for the first church and try to get on the same unified page regarding that question. And only then when we have considered the argument and have got a biblical conviction, only then are we ready to start talking about some specifics. Because if we're not there, we are talking from two radically different paradigms. And all we're going to breed is disunity. 
You see, the chapters that we read that we're going to look at, particularly in Corinthians, the words that are written, they are part of the Word of God. And here's what Jesus said. Man does not live on bread alone, but on what? How many? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. I am, I'm not, I'm not saying this at all. I'm not defaming any other preacher and I'm not bragging on me. I'm just telling you, I'm sure you know this by now. I'm not a preacher that is afraid to deal with controversial issues. But I want to balance that. Neither am I one that just likes to stir things up for the fun of it. What I do have is a healthy, reverent fear. A fear that on one day I'm going to stand before my God who is a consuming fire. And on that day, the God who called me to this work and the God who gave me the gift of preaching and the God who will ask me to give an account of what I did with that gift, I do not want to tell him, I'm sorry, I felt like a portion of your word was not appropriate to share with your people. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Neither do I want to stand before him and answer for a split or a division that I created in the church. So the wise thing is to start with this question and make sure we get it answered biblically so that we can launch into the specifics once we are standing on a pretty sound, at least in my conviction, what I'm going to share with you and I have done an incredible amount of study. What I believe is a solid biblical position. And I want to say this to you as well. Regardless of which side of this issue that you are on, as we talk about this this week and next, would you be humble? I want you to know that I have worked very hard at that. I have went before the Lord and said, I have some convictions, but I, if I have something that needs changed, would you change it? Oh, please, God, would you change it? That I am going to fight to be def- against being defensive, and I am going to be open to hearing whatever God wants to say to me. And I've had some difficult things already said to me since this was announced two weeks ago. But that's, I believe that's all a part of the sovereignty of God. And I want to take each one of those before the Lord and say, I don't want to react to this. I just want to, I want to check it with Scripture and I want to say, God, where you need to line me up, line me up. Because that's what's important. Folks, none of us, if anyone here thinks that they have arrived and got everything figured out, you are 
foolish. I mean, I, I can't say that strongly enough. You're foolish if you think you have figured it all out. We need to be people who are willing to grow and learn. So would you just hold loosely presuppositions and say, what does the word of God say? What I want to do as we jump in to get an answer to this, I think the best way to come at this is to look at the objections from those with the doctrinal position that says these gifts of the miraculous were only for the first church. To look at the basic objections that are raised and their basis for those convictions and just check those with Scripture. Because it would seem with all of the evidence in Scripture of the miraculous. And I, I mean, really, that's where I want to be grounded. I think we could go on and say, and the evidence from 2,000 years of church history of the miraculous. But let's just right now stick with Scripture. That if we're going to say it was only for them, that we better be able to pull from this sound an arguable evidence that God has told us that in his word. Here's the first objection. They're not really coming in any order, but here's one. That the miraculous gifts, those visibly external miraculous gifts, were given until the New Testament canon was completed. That they were a part of the early church, not even just in the first century, but all the way to the third century in 300 and I believe it was about 330. I'm trying to remember my church history study. But when the canon was finally formalized, what the canon is, meaning it is the rule or the measuring rod, it is the compiling of those New Testament letters that were determined, yes, these are in fact the very words of God. They give undeniable evidence that God inspired these to be written and they were pulled together into a group of texts added to the Old Testament so that we have now one book that we call the Word of God. So, The argument is that until that group of New Testament letters was put into that canon of Scripture, that these miraculous gifts were in force in the church, but once that canon was finalized, that they faded away and no longer exist. So let's consider that. The purpose or the focus behind that argument is that that early church, they didn't have the full knowledge of God. They didn't have the scriptures that we have in full measure to keep them moving and directed down the right path. And so it was necessary 
for God to step into their environment through the miraculous to keep them headed in the right way. To do the miraculous works and show his power to bring special words of revelation to them so that they wouldn't go way off on a tangent but would stay on the truth until such a time as this could be completed and the guidebook could protect us from doing that. So on the surface, I would, without hesitation, say that it sounds pretty logical. I mean, they're not trying to be illogical. They're thinking and processing even, I believe, without doubt, trying to be as true as they can to Scripture. In fact, let me say this. Those who fall into this or who align themselves with this position that know they were only for the early church would be those made up of, not all in this camp, but those in the very conservative vein of the evangelical church. And what that group holds in highest esteem is the word of God. They would, if they would ever shout out in the church, they would shout amen to this. We got to make sure whatever we draw is found solidly in the word of God. (laughs) Tom just says where he's at. So let's try to draw from Scripture or look at the Scriptures with which they build their case upon to validate this understanding. In fact, where the key text where this is based from is right in the middle of the section of Scripture in Corinthians where Paul is dealing with the gifts of the miraculous. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And in 1 Corinthians 13, right in the middle of the discussion, at the end of this great dialogue on love, here is what... Paul writes to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. Love never fails or never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. Are you seeing the connection here? As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... When the perfect comes, right here, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
So the way that this is organized or drawn or the conclusions made from the scriptures is this. They say that the miraculous gifts are the imperfect and the scriptures are the perfect. That when Paul is writing here about the perfect and the imperfect, that's what he's talking about. The imperfect, these temporary gifts, the perfect, the scripture that will come. The former things were only the temporary childish things. Those miraculous external manifestations of power were the temporary childish things. But when the scriptures come, the church could then move into maturity. That during the early days of the church, during the first church, they only saw dimly as in a mirror. But now that we have the full body of Scripture, we see face to face. That during the first century, they only knew in part. But now we know fully, even as we are fully known. Now, I wanted to highlight each one of those four things specifically so that we could just then apply this, test this, check this. Paul is speaking here in the first person. Do you see that? When I was a child, I reasoned, I thought, I became, I know, and then I shall know. He's talking in the first person here. As a part of the early church here. So, what would the conclusion be? It would be this. Since we now have the full body of truth, that we are no longer imperfect in our knowledge like Paul was. That we have moved on to perfection and left him behind. Anybody ready to say that? That we have moved beyond Paul's childish spirituality and have risen above Paul in maturity. That our vision of truth is no longer dimmed like Paul's was. I mean, that poor guy just just saw through the mirror dimly and we instead see clearly. And his limited understanding of God, we've eclipsed that and left that far behind even so far that now we know God fully. Anybody want to take a bite at that? I, I don't. I sure don't. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, in verses 8 through 12, 
is contrasting this life with the life to come. It's unmistakable that that is what he's doing. It is when we see him face to face, when we see Jesus face to face, that we will become like him, having seen him as he is. It is now that we see dimly and then that we're going to see clearly. It is now that we are still childish in part and then we are going to grow into full maturity. He's talking about the life on earth, the life filled with hope of the glory that's to come, and then the actual life of glory where we see what we do not see now. And are transformed by His glory and glorified ourself. That's what He's referring to. Let me kind of take the next two objections together. That was one. Here's kind of two and three of it. Number two is the miraculous gifts were given to convince the Jews. That the reason in that early church that these miraculous gifts were given was because the Jews needed something radical to convince them. They had a system of works, a system of sacrificial observances and for a man to come who was a son of a Jewish carpenter and say, I'm God. I am the Christ promised throughout all of the Old Testament, the one that you have been waiting generation after generation for, for them to believe that and for them to believe the apostles who preached that in the first century, God was going to have to show up and do something that blew their minds for them to even be willing to hear it. Therefore, these gifts were only meant to convince the Jew that century. What do the Scriptures say? Is there any communication in the Word of God that tells us that? There is none. There is none. Let's just check the story of the book of Acts as that story unfolds. How... I mean, if that's true, if God gave the gifts of the miraculous to convince the Jew, is that what happened? Is that what was effective? Is that the process that those who were filled with those gifts used? Let's just check that with Scripture. Paul, I'm just going to give you a notable example here, one that's repeated, and I'll show you that in this text. Paul comes to Thessalonica and listen to what the biblical record says when he arrives. Acts 17, 
Last part of verse 1 down through verse 3. He was traveling with some others. And it says when they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. What approach did the great apostle take here to convince the Jew? Did he razzle and dazzle them with the miraculous? He went into their synagogue, into their church, and he opened up the scriptures and he said, let me show you from these right here that the Christ that you have been looking for came in the person of Jesus Christ whom you crucified. Now, doesn't that make sense? Where did the Jews put their faith? In the word of God. The word of God was everything to them. Their Old Testament, the scriptures of the prophets through which God communicated his truth. If a man could take their truth, could argue with them, right from their basis of authority and say to them, right here it says this and this and this and Jesus did this and this and this. It's him. Boy, that would be what would hold weight with them. That's exactly what Paul did. And he didn't do it once. It says, as was his custom. Let's look at the other side. What would impress the Gentiles? They didn't start with the same presupposition. They didn't start with the conviction that the, word, that the Old Testament was the word of God. So to take the word of God to them singly and just argue from the basis of those scriptures, they may not put much weight in. But the miraculous, the movement of the power of God to validate that what they were saying was something outside of this world. Now that would have some weight. Let's look at the most notable example of that, I think, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, verse 8, we read that Paul, just asking you to flip there, we read that Paul, initially followed the same process that he followed in Thessalonica. That he came here in Acts 19 to Ephesus. And by the way, Ephesus was a primarily Gentile community. But he came here and he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he opened the scriptures, reasoning with them concerning Christ. In fact, it says that he did it for three months. Not three Sabbaths, three months. 
But it also says in those verses there in Acts 19 that some of them were just stubborn-hearted and refused to believe. Not only that, but they began speaking out trouble against, quote, the way, the message that Paul was giving. And so Paul left the synagogue behind and he went into what I would say is probably like the public square. He went to the hall of Tyrannus. Public sector. And there for two years, he reasoned from the scriptures. He taught the truth. But what else did he do? It says in verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them in the evil and the evil spirits came out of them. Isn't that just what Jesus said in Mark 16? When you preach the gospel, there's going to be signs and wonders that are going to accompany it, that are going to validate That this is the truth. That's what was going on here in Ephesus. So instead of the scriptures validating the position that those gifts of the miraculous were meant to convince the Jew, it seems very clear to me that the scripture says that those gifts were convincing the Gentiles, not just the Jews. And in fact, were even probably more influential in the Gentile community. Here's the third gift that, or the third objection, that the miraculous gifts were given simply to launch the church. Meaning this, that it takes more effort to get something started than it does to keep it going. You ever, when you were in high school or grade school, you ever played with one of those giant, what do they call them, medicine balls, those big balls that are weighted and you try to get a team on each side and get that thing going? The key is whoever gets it going first usually wins. Because when you got the momentum going, it's much easier to keep it going than to try to start it or stop it and head it in another direction. That's the idea behind this line of thought here, that the gifts of the miraculous were divine inertia, this kind of divine shove to get the church off of the starting blocks and get that momentum going with that divine push. And that once that push had happened, then those gifts faded away. It seems like most of those that take that position really say it was the apostles who had that gift. And when they died out or died off, that gift faded into oblivion. Here's how they try to back that up with Scripture. 
Again, they honor the Scripture. They want to deduce it from the Scripture. They say, what you have in the story of Acts is you have this decreasing frequency of miracles as the story progresses. And the reason that it's decreasing is because the gifts are fading away. That divine push is ending and will actually eventually cease to be altogether. Examples. Timothy. Paul told Timothy in his letter to Timothy. Timothy, take some wine with your drink because of your frequent illness. That Timothy had a, Timothy had a frequent illness. And if Timothy had a frequent illness, if the gifts were in full bloom in the first church, Timothy wouldn't have a frequent illness. He would be healed by the miraculous move of the Spirit of God through one of the gifts of the Spirit. Epaphroditus is another example. In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul referred to Epaphroditus, his dear fellow worker, who was joining him in advancing the gospel. But he says there that he had been ill, not just ill, near to death ill. So the argument or the conclusion drawn from that is the same. Why is that? Why wasn't he not healed by one of the gifts of the miraculous? They must have been fading away, that flame dying out. Lit only for a time. Maybe the greatest evidence being this. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul was bothered by, he was afflicted with a thorn in the flesh. This is the great apostle. This is the Gentlemen, we just read about who would have a handkerchief brought and if it touched his flesh, that piece of cloth would be taken to a sick person and laid on them. And when that cloth that had touched the powerful flesh of the apostle was put upon the ill, the disease would be cured. Paul didn't even need to be there. But the argument goes, here he is. With an affliction. That'd be a little facetious for a minute. Why didn't he just pull his hanky out and blow his nose? And heal himself. I mean, why didn't he just activate that gift of healing? And rise up from that affliction in victory. Well, Paul prayed about that three times. And Paul said, the Lord gave me an answer. Why? 
And the answer is, because the miraculous gifts have died out? Was that the answer? No. The answer from the Lord, as he beseeched the Lord three times, was this. My strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What was he saying there? Lesson for Paul was this. There's something more important than your physical health. What's more important than your physical health is your spiritual power. And Paul, you have been given some exceedingly great revelations. That's right before he talks about this. And so Paul said, I was given this thorn. And I'm paraphrasing here. But I needed to stay humble. Because of the exceedingly great revelation that I had been given. And so I received this thorn in the flesh that afflicted me and I I beseeched God, I begged God three times to remove it. And God said, no. Christ said, nope. Paul, what you need is you need to stay in a place where my power can continue to flow in and through you for your ministry. What's more important than your health is your spiritual power. And you need this to keep you in a place of spiritual power. So the issue here is not the absence of the gifts. Not at all. God at times allows things to come into our lives like he allowed things that to come into Paul's life so that he can, with that, do something good eternally and spiritually in us. Here's a key point. Kind of key, overarching idea. The miraculous gifts are under the sovereign control of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's more to that probably than what you're initially thinking, but listen to it again. A great overall conclusion is that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, when He gives them, are still under the sovereign control of the Holy Spirit. They are under His sovereign control in that He gives them to whom He will. We read that a little bit earlier. That it is the Spirit of God who in His sovereign decision determines who gets what gift. But not only that, Consider the example of Paul. Consider the example of Timothy. Consider the example of Epaphroditus here. All three of those would indicate this, that not only does the Spirit of God sovereignly determine 
who he gives them to, but he also determines when they use them. He also determines when that power can be released and activated. They can't just do it any time they want. If Paul could have done it any time he wanted, he would have removed his affliction. If you keep that in your mind and you do a read-through of Acts, here is what you will see. Implicit. Sometimes, I would say even most of the times, very explicitly stated, but always strongly implied at the minimum is that when these gifts were operated, there was a a communication. There was something that took place in the life of the person where they realized the Spirit of God was saying in that moment, here is what I'm going to do with you right now. They could not just... Pull out the card of healing whenever they wanted to pull it out and do the work. It was under the sovereign control of the Holy Spirit. Not just who got those gifts, but when and where and how they exercised those gifts. Not that he gives a gift and removes it. I'm not talking about that. The gifts of God are irrevocable, Scripture says. But the gifts that he gives, those operations of the visibly miraculous, once you have got that gift by the Spirit of God, it is not just to use at your whim. It is to be used when the Spirit of God or not just to be, can only be used when the Spirit of God activates that gift and flows through your life in power in that way. Now, obviously, you're going to start making some connections here on some implications, some specific implications. And we're going to talk about some of those next week. But the point here is that the gifts of the Spirit, those, are under His sovereign control. He never takes His hands off of those. And this goes all the way back to the definition we began with at the beginning of the series and have mentioned each week, I believe, through the series. And that is the gift is not something external from the Spirit that He gives you and walks away. It is Him. The gift is the Spirit. It is the Spirit living in the follower of Christ that chooses in this way or that way according to that gift to display the person of Jesus Christ and His power through that life. So we should be careful to avoid the two extremes. To avoid the extreme that says... That it never happens. 
that it never happens. I do not believe there's biblical evidence for that conclusion. We must also avoid the opposite extreme. The extreme that says those gifts are still today, but not just that. They are in operation or should be in full profuse operation to this day. Not only that, but in every location. Not only that, but in every church all the time. They're to be under or they are under the sovereignty of the Spirit of God. He determines who gets them. He determines when they use them. That seems to be the only biblically sound conclusion. It's the only biblically sound conclusion right now that I can draw having looked and looked and looked at this. I'm not saying I'm without error. Not at all, but I'm pretty convinced right now that that's the truth. So what we should say, we shouldn't say never happens. We shouldn't say it should happen all the time. Here's what we should say. Holy Spirit, do as you will. Do as you will. I'm saying that to both sides of the issue here. To those who think they should be happening all the time in every place, in every church. Is that what you want or is that what the Spirit of God wants? To those who say they never happen again. Do you have that right? Who's sovereign? Folks, what I know is this. We should always seek to be living in the fullness of the Spirit. I want you to know I am seeking that. I am seeking that. To live in the fullness of the Spirit. And I am asking God. I I am saying, Lord, I don't want any boxes that I'm putting you in. I want your fullness, but neither do I want to dictate to you what you're going to do. You see, that other extreme is pull the card out any time. That other extreme is the claimant extreme. That I can just claim this any time. I can claim a healing any time. I can claim the fullness of the Spirit any time. I would just caution you, check that with Scripture. But oh, I would caution you if you would say that is not for us. Oh, that's dangerous. How that is, I believe, a quenching of the Spirit of God.
So in light of the sovereignty of the Spirit, I think we should conclude this. Number one, the gifts operate under the Spirit's sovereignty, not man's will. Number two, the exercise of the gifts take place when the Spirit determines not when man wills. And number three, the New Testament itself, we see that they do not always happen when we want them to happen. So they're always possible, but they're not always present. But what we need to do is make sure that we are individuals and a church body that is saying, Holy Spirit, as you will. We want whatever you want for us. And if you want to pour out your spirit on us in a way that we've never experienced, you are the Lord, not us. I would say even beyond that, we should be saying, I don't want to live short of the fullness of God in my life. Oh, the world needs us filled. I'm telling you, the world needs us filled. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Father, uh, just commit to you these words of my mouth, meditations of my heart. I, you know, I've tried to be faithful to your truth. Conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean every word was right. But I ask you to take what was shared that you want to apply and seat it deeply in the hearts and let us be humble before you to say God line my thought and my understanding up with your truth have your way in me in Christ's name Amen